Welcome to another edition of Practitioner Radio, Pink Elephant's podcast for the IT management community. is Practitioner Radio from Pink Elephants coming to you now. George Spaulding, I'm the Executive VP at Pink Elephant. With me, as always, is my good buddy, Troy DeMoulin. Troy, say hello. George, it's a pleasure. It's been too long. It's been way too long. Way too long. My gosh, we've been to Toronto and back. (laughs) And Orlando and back. And speaking of traveling, we have a special guest with us today. We have one of our old buddies, our oldest buddy from uh, the Australian group, only it's called ITSM Hub now. Uh, Shane used to be an employee of Pink Elephant, and this is Shane Johnson. Shane, you must have a fancy title. What's your fancy title down there? Oh, um... What, what day is it? It's Tuesday. Okay, today I'm the principal consultant. Good. That's the great. principal consultant. The principal consultant with an yes, A. Yes, not, just, not, just, yeah, not any just any principal, principal. consultant. Yeah, exactly. So this is Shane Johnson, principal consultant with ITSM Hub. Shane, go, we go back a long way with Shane. And we, we picked Shane to be today's subject matter expert because today we want to talk about SIAM, which is the Service Integration and Management Model um, of IT. And uh, I don't know enough about it to even go much beyond that. Troy, talk about SIAM as much as you know, and then we'll turn it over and ask questions of the smart guy. Well, the reality is um, we live in a multi-supplier mode, right? We have this overall value chain, uh, but there are many different supplier types, and ITIL's been talking about this for a little bit, but it really hasn't given practical guidance on how to manage it. Right? You've got internal, external suppliers. You've got third-party. We're doing more and more cloud sourcing, which is another way to say outsourcing. So the supplier model in general has simply gone you know, from relatively straightforward to more and more complex. The question is, how do you start pulling all of these groups together? How do you create a orchestration, use that metaphor, all of the different, you know, talent in the orchestra, uh, the wind section, the, you know, the, the, the brass, et cetera, et cetera, and how to make sure that they all play at the right time with the right note on the right key. That's becoming a completely different challenge. That's what I would describe as Siam. Now, thanks, Troy. So, Shane, uh, let's just pretend <clears throat> that uh, Troy and I really don't know much about Siam. So, why don't you just start from the very basics and tell us what it is and then how it's applied in the real world? Okay. Um, apart from that, I'll also uh, provide the solution to Cold Fusion and Fermi's last uh, something or other. Now, SIAM. Um, 
it's more or less a, a, a new label on the old multi-sourcing, as Troy observed. And uh, it's been uh, around for probably four years, five years, uh, but it's been formalised uh, really over the last, I guess, three-ish. And it is a response to that lack of guidance on how do we actually manage all these multi-sources um, you know, the more you uh, give it your uh, service provision to other parties, the more messy it becomes. And it's also a response to mistakes that have been made by um, people who go and outsource their uh, IT services. And it's based upon our current um, best practices. So it does talk in an idle-like way um, about the... Uh, services and capabilities and processes and so forth and uh, it's about having an informed decision and, an, and a, if you like a rational approach for managing the service risk of those services being outsourced as much to uh, decide how much service risk you are knowingly transferring and uh, the other parties accepting when there's multiple parties involved as well as somehow keeping control of it and uh, knowing when you're stepping too far in uh, outsourcing the governance aspects. One of the dilemmas or one of the complaints I'm, I keep hearing about now is that uh, IT has grown too complex. And I, I don't think it was, I don't think it grew complex uh, overnight. I think that people took, uh, made one decision, and then that solved the problem for the moment, and then they made another decision, and that solved another problem that was pressing, and they made another decision, and then a couple of years later, they woke up, and they looked at what they had, and it, it was a, it's a mess. And um, we're seeing in some cases that the real issue is the sheer complexity where we start to see incidents, simple, what would seem to be a simple incident management challenge, turns into this two, three-day uh, diagnosis, because, or triage, because they can't figure out. It's not that they can't fix it. They don't know what's wrong or they don't know who is wrong and whose system is doing what. The control element seems to one. be gone. One step further, I'll say even contractually, sometimes we put relationships in place that are detrimental, let's say the least, uh, to, you know, value creation. Yeah, um, I'm reminded of a phrase that uh, my um, database development tutor at university used and uh, seeing it a lot here, you know, this complexity it's like a ball of wool and you don't know which thread to pull and uh, it's in a situation now where we don't just have complexity of architectures and complexity of environments we also have complexity of as Troy observed the contractors and we're ending up with no separation of concerns we have pathological coupling of everything connected to everything and there's no logical um, integration points that you can look at and say the buck stops there or the application stops there and clouds only adding to the uh, mix of interesting times. I'd like to bring in the systems thinking because one of the things that we do talk about a lot here is is lean and systems thinking concepts and the key premise for a, a, a value system to operate as a as a healthy one 
<laughs> with shared speed means that they have to have shared goals, objectives, you know, practices, and priorities, right? They have to operate as a system, as a community. But when you have all of these different suppliers, many of them being competitive to each other, how do you create this constancy of purpose we're looking for in systems thinking unless you start to, to find a way to pull them together and orchestrate them, right? Because by nature, they're going to be uh, naturally opposed, not collaborative in that mindset. So this is another challenge, a systems thinking challenge. Yeah. Um, uh, Shane, let me ask, let me rephrase this. So uh, this question that, that Troy really just asked was, so is there, uh, Troy's used the word a couple of times, orchestrate, so that we basically have all these, well, in it's a multi-source model, so we have all these sources, we, we have all these vendors. Is there is there a central place that this is all somehow managed? How does that work? Well, in theory, yes. Um, the service integrator layer, if we imagine the traditional approach of um, in any internal IT shop, we have the different towers or the groups, so you know, the networks, the infrastructure, applications and so forth. Um, that kind of concept is replicated in the generic SIAM model where you have those external towers of competency and capability, um, each of which are doing their own thing. You know, it could be mainframes, networks, applications, desktop, and so on. Um, but then the decision is made to establish an integration layer which acts as the orchestrator, arbitrator, and voice of the customer. Um, on behalf of the customer. Now, that can be internal, external, a mix of the two, um, but it's a conscious decision made that, okay, we're going to have a structure that isn't actually doing the technology part, but doing the orchestration part. Couldn't that be IT? In other words, couldn't, couldn't the integrator actually be IT and then all these other people are doing the technology part of it? As an integrator. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, th there's a bit of a caveat there, though. It, it needs to be a designated part of IT which has the authority and the accountability for pulling that together. Um, they can't just be doing it as a side job and their real day job is over here twiddling the knobs or um, trying to uh, do stuff that they used to do whilst the outsourcers are still doing their stuff as well. So they're dedicated. Yeah. So, yeah, so it, it has to be designated, dedicated, and it has to be treated as the service integrator layer, even though it is internal. Contracts. Does the service integrator layer, is that part of the contract somehow? Uh, that's where it becomes messy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so if we have, uh, you're the customer, George. Um and you're, you're a very demanding customer, as we all know. So I'm supplying widgets to you. And uh, you decide that you also want to outsource stuff to Troy. And uh, so Troy starts supplying stuff to you as well. And you decide it's all too hard. You want to get an integrator. Um, you, you contract an integrator in. And you say, hey, integrator, you've got to manage Shane and uh, Troy. 
But uh, we look at the integrator and say, oh, yeah, whatever, but our contract is with George. I'll just ignore what the integrator says whenever I can get away with it. Great. <laughs> so this is where I have some challenges with it because let's just think there's, there's this integrating layer and George, you mentioned, couldn't they just be internal IT? And that's one model I'm familiar with. But then there's this concept where I bring in a contractor, which is what you just said, Shane, yeah. where I have a third party now managing two other third parties. And mm -hmm. that's my observation. Typically in this scenario, they basically say, well, I don't really care about the integrator. I'm actually, and I, I want a direct relationship with the actual customer behind the integrator. And so they, in essence, want to go around or circumvent. So how effective really is it to have the integrator being a third party, an outside uh, entity in this case? Yeah, um, it, it does require a lot of work. And in some ways, it starts with the uh, customer having a good appreciation and taking a very much an eyes wide open approach to what do I want to achieve with this um, integration layer. And unfortunately, the integration layer is often appointed after you've already contracted with those other external parties. So mm. the uh, those existing contracts are agnostic to the integration layer and you're trying to retrofit um, new practices into old contracts. So where it does work is um, going back to the contracts and saying, okay, if I'm going to put an integrator in, an external integrator, I now need to revisit those contracts and put language in there that says, you go to us via the integrator and the integrator speaks with our voice. But how willingly are they going to do that? I mean, that's not to their advantage in their own mind. No, no. Um, they have their own commercial imperatives and we see this, you know, it's since time immemorial. Um, service providers uh, have their own commercial imperatives um, that uh, operate within the context of a contract to supply services. They want to be profitable, they want to um, maintain their reputation and they want to have a good relationship. And in some ways the uh, integration layer can be a an obstruction to those imperatives. Shane, when um, a thousand years ago, uh, before I was in with Pink Elephant, um, I did uh, some government contracting in Washington D.C. Um, and what I tended to see, and I think I still see a lot is the federal government, of course, doesn't do anything themselves. At least the U.S. government doesn't. They, they always pretty much outsource anything they possibly can. But they tend to always have a lead contractor, uh, what we might call a general contractor or a lead supplier. And then if that lead supplier needs other capabilities that they don't possess internally, it's their responsibility to go out and get those additional capabilities. The in this case, the government, who's the customer, really only has one supplier. That's the way they operate. All right. Um, that That's uh, less common here. Although when I say less common, we do see situations where a supplier will engage another party, for example, to um, 
you know, manage desktop or run the service desk or do part of applications that the uh, external supplier can't do. But we also see um, with large contracts that the customer will go out directly and engage different large organisations to do things like mainframes, to do networks, to do telco, um, to do applications if they're not keeping it internally. So, and, and that's, I think, where the, um, the challenge arises. You do have a difference between the lines, the nominal lines of command, control and governance and the lines of commercials per the contract. Sounds like, especially if the customer goes out and gets all these different organizations. It, when you described it earlier, when I asked about that in a, that orchestration and you came up with an integration layer, you described it as a reaction to uh, things not being very smooth or that this was too hard to keep everybody in in check so, or to keep yeah. in, in any kind of control, that it was a reaction. Um, and that it sounds to me like if if customers did this the way the way they are actually doing it right now and without any kind of a SIAM model, this is just what they're doing. Uh, it sounds like a mess. Yeah, absolutely. Go, Troy. Yeah, in my experience, that's exactly what happens as well. Usually, they decide to source for usually cost savings, sometimes talent, but usually it's you know. We'll do it cheaper, your mess for less conversation. And they do this a couple of times. They create uh, service towers, if, they, if you will. And then they realize the, the pain of that experience. And now they're coming back and saying, okay, I need this orchestration capability. So if that's my experience as well, that almost always they come at the, side, <laughs> the SIAM question after the horse is out of the barn, if you will, and the pain has already been experienced. Now, the problem is, how willingly will these, you know, already contracted vendors reopen their negotiation and their contracts, which they, I'm sure they hard fought to begin with, to now be accountable to another party that was not in the picture at the beginning. Of course, we could pull out the carrot and the stick and all of that, but that's where it really becomes messy. And messy is a word Jane you've used a couple of times. Yeah. And uh, it's a... Uh... It also has to be um, cultivated, um, even if we assume that it, it starts off with good intent and goodwill. Um, all it requires is a, a couple of bad things to happen along the way, um, a ne negative experience, a major incident. And if there are any uh, weaknesses in that um, the whole management and governance structure, they get exposed quite badly. Um, instead of information sharing, it becomes information keeping, it's protecting your turf, it's don't embarrass us, um, let's massage the data. Um, so let's, that, that, that's, yeah. let's imagine it's actually done the right way. And I imagine that would mean we plan to use a multi-supplier model and we want to set up an integrator as a first step and then introduce other players as a secondary step. And you had, when we talked before, Shane, you had identified there's like four primary approaches to this. Could you outline those approaches? Because I think I'll, I have a personal opinion about what I believe is the strongest, but I want to hear your thoughts. Sure. And uh, I, 
I didn't come up with these just if, in case anyone thinks I'm more brilliant than I'm supposed to be. Um, I'm, I'm plagiarising uh, from, you know, the work that's already been done out there by the uh, people who came up with this Cyan model. But uh, four models. Um, there's the one that we mentioned earlier, the internally sourced service integrator. That's where the uh, IT service organisation decides that they're going to establish an internal service integrator capability to manage those uh, external service providers. Um, if you've got the... Uh, the talent. Right? These are de yeah. dedicated people to the integration of this. Yeah, this is, and okay. uh, that can become a bit politically awkward because it's then perceived as an additional cost of IT. Okay, so we decide instead we're going to give it to someone else to worry about. Um, I want to appoint a, an organisation to act as our integrator. And uh, so you're it, you're going to be our integrator, and then when we onboard or ex externally source other services, uh, other customers, it's your job to hide the complexity behind the scenes and present a nice, smiling service uh, interface to ourselves and our business. Now, let me just clarify because I'm, you know, I'm following you. Just want to be clear. So this is mm -hmm. a third party that we are hiring to do the integration function, but they're they're just a dedicated integrator. They don't do any of the technical stuff. Yeah, um, that they they might uh, have their own uh, tools and methods, and they might be, be shareable or shared. But uh, they're very much there to provide that integration rather than do the the techie bits. Okay, <laughs> techie bits. Yeah. Okay. That's that's number two. What's the next okay. one? Okay. Number three is uh, where we decide. Um, either on philosophical or practical or commercial bases to mix uh, the external integ the integration with an external party and our own IT. So this is the hybrid model where some of the um, service integration is performed by the internal IT organisation and some of the service integration is performed by the external party. Of course, to make that work, it has to be very clear for everyone which bits belong to whom as far as the integration responsibility occurs. And you might see this happen, for example, where you have cloud services, where okay. the uh, necessity for the external integrator exerting, if you like, heavy integration um, upon the towers um, is perhaps less necessary if you've got cloud. And there's one more, right? There's a fourth? Yeah. Well, wait, 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 before you get off that one. Um, so it's, so you're saying, so you're saying, let me just get this straight, that mm. I have an internal dedicated integration function inside IT, yeah. and I have an external contracted integration function. Yep. And, and at the, running at the same time, and the internal guy does A, B, and C, and the external guy does D, E, and F, and never the Correct. never the twain shall meet. 
Well, we hope the twain meet very often. Otherwise, <laughs> it goes really bad. Marriage, yeah. <laughs> right, and you could do this. You could you could do the technical side with the external because that's the commodity services, right? The you know your hosting, your your network, etc. And your more engineering architecture stuff. If you don't retain that, that could be the internal integrator. Yeah, although now we're st standing into the area where retained capabilities arise, and we shouldn't really be giving those to another party. No, that's correct. Okay, so there's the fourth model. Yeah. All right, so this is a more akin to the model George is describing, um, not identical to, but similar to, where we have uh, one of those towers providing uh, a, one or more services, and we say, okay, we want you to also act as the service integrator. So we have the lead supplier as service integrator model. Now that presents some interesting uh, challenges for the, uh, the the party taking up that role because they're in effect having to behave in two different ways. They're having to behave as a service provider as well as behaving as a service integrator. Yeah, and so that's, unfortunately you get bleed over. That's what, I, that's what I would see. I think that's probably in my, this is personal opinion, that's probably the least... <laughs> I would say stable because you have a paradox going on here, uh, conflict of interest almost. Yeah, conflict. Not sure. It's a conflict. It's not a conflict of interest. It's it's just it, the it's the eight hundred pound gorilla, and that's who we've hired. We've hired the eight hundred pound gorilla. Now the eight hundred pound gorilla is going to go out and basically hire all the other people they need if they want, and they. That those other people answer to the 800-pound gorilla. We might not even know as the customer in the business that those other people have been hired. We literally might not know that there, there, there are third parties working on our, our infrastructure and our issues and delivering value to our business. We might not even know their name. Yeah. So it might work okay if they're hiring the other people, but let's say I have mm -hmm. a supplier that I'm dealing with over here on the you know the side, and I now would like this person to this group to be now managed by the integrator. Um, that's a pretty daunting thing for both parties because uh, basically now this supplier that I was having a direct relationship is now being put under the <laughs> literal weight of the 800-pound gorilla. I can't see that going well. And that 800-pound gorilla would probably want to have more control than less, obviously. So that's going to create tension. Indeed. And it depends whether the integrator or the contracts came first as well. So we've got maybe five minutes left, Shane. So can you give, yep. me, can you give me an example of a successful implementation and and how they did it? What, what's their model? Oh, dear. Um, this is where non dis Yeah, I'm just They're trying to think. supposed uh, to be a successful one of these. You see, it, it, it takes, um, yeah, as with any uh, large-scale thing, uh, you know, some time for it to settle. Um, and I recall... Was it um, the Sydney CBIT 2014? The Australian Taxation Office uh, presented their 
on uh, a model that uh, they it wasn't actually referred to at that stage, I believe, as SIAM, but just a complex multi-source environment. And um, they presented on uh, the challenges and, and the experience of managing that complex multi-source arrangement. And it was very much a stage of going through the discovery, the initial um, forming and uh, realisation that there were different ways we could be doing it and then going through the evolution and uh, aligning the the, uh, the practices to what was practical versus what the contracts initially said. Um, and I believe that you know, if you go back into the CBIT, back in, was it 2014 or 2015, um, that, that material was um, publicly available then. Okay. So I guess this is this is kind of a loaded question. So you've seen a mm -hmm. presentation as you go out into the world and do your consulting. Do you do you see people with these issues and do they recognize the issues? Oh, absolutely. Um, and looking around the place with the consulting and the training work we've been doing over the last several years. Um, no one is um, blind to the issues. Everyone's quite aware of the issues. It's just the scale and scope that uh, means that the, you know, once the issue is recognised, it's a case of, you know, you can't just start start again from scratch. You can't do a wholesale change because we still have to deliver services whilst all this um, tuning behind the scenes is going on. And it is constant tuning. It's not, you know, pull a lever once and leave the lever there. Um, as you're onboarding new services, onboarding new service providers, onboarding new customer groups, or in some cases divesting them, um, it's constantly undergoing evolution so you know, from governance layer downwards uh, there's this ongoing need to keep pulling those levers to uh, continue to deliver the result yeah so let's look at, at the uh, other side of the glass though I mean it is a challenge it's a challenge that had to be looked at it's not mm. easy even in the now proposed integration model but if you don't have a service integrator whether that's an internal focused dedicated team or an external I think the result would be even worse because now you just have pure chaos without any orchestration. Well, I think if you don't have a service integrator, you have a service integrator anyway. You just don't know that you're doing it. I mean, you're, you've got somebody who's got another job who's trying to do this out of their back pocket. They, yeah. All they know is that this doesn't seem to be working. This is chaotic. And now we have an incident. And now what am I supposed to do? So I think that... It's just a recognition of something that has to be there. And if we don't make it official or obvious or transparent, then we have it anyway. Mm -hmm. Oh, I agree. And it's it's way better than the alternative, as you observe. And I think one of the uh, powerful things that comes out of the uh, SIAM approach and model is the strong... Um, emphasis on governance from the top down and the understanding of what you're retaining as your own capabilities internal to the uh, customer organization and the extent of the direction and control you intend to exert. So this is key, George. I think we need to just Go drill ahead. down on this one a little bit more. Go ahead. So we've been talking about using this integrator and then you know having certain aspects of our uh, value chain externalized under the integrator. 
But there are some things we should never externalize. These are what uh, Shane's just referred to as the quote-unquote retained capabilities and practices. Shane, you want to expand on what, what they are? How would you describe those in general? Uh, in, in general, um, they're the strategic capabilities and practices. Um, we hear the old horror stories of uh, where organisations in the past have outsourced accountability as well as responsibility. And uh, our retained capabilities are in effect our special source and our strategy and architecture-like stuff that makes us distinctive in the marketplace we're competing in as a customer organisation. So things like your uh, procurement and contract management, your enterprise architecture, your service strategy, um, the overall strategic demand management, um, service portfolio, your broad risk management practices are some of the things that you should always be keeping as retained capabilities. All right, guys, we're getting uh, we have to wrap this up. We're already a little over time. So um, some final statements from both of you. Troy, you go first. <laughs> you're damned if you do, and you're more damned if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. Very, very yeah. distinctly put. Okay, Shane. Yeah, it's um, it's it's relatively new territory for a lot of organizations. Um, if you haven't done it before, you don't know what you're getting yourself into, but... Um, as you say, Troy, it's uh, better than the alternative. All right. That was much more politely stated. <laughs> much more politely stated. Yes, Troy. So I just wanted to make sure that everyone understands this is Practitioner Radio from Pink Elephant, number 73. There is an organization called the SIAM Foundation, and it does offer a body of knowledge. So there is more information out there on the web. Uh, I urge you to go out and learn as much as possible uh, about this because you're probably in the middle of a multi-sourcing model. I'm going to wrap this up for today. Thanks, everybody. And this is George Spaulding signing off.